When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Natalia Shpulova Said, and I'm a host of New Books in Ukrainian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm delighted to speak today with Emily Channel Justice, author of Without the State Self Organization and Political Activism in Ukraine, published by the University of Toronto Press in 2022. Emily Channel Justice is the director of the Tamarty Contemporary Ukraine program at the Ukrainian Research Institute, Harvard University. In addition to authoring Without the State, she edited the volume Decolonizing Queer Experience LGBT plus narratives from Eastern Europe and Eurasia that was published in 2020. She has published academic articles in journals including History and Anthropology, Revolutionary Russia, and Science, Journal of Women in Culture and Society. Hello, Emily. Thank you so much for joining me today, and congratulations on the book that was published just a few weeks ago. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for featuring the book. So, as you described in the introduction of your um, book, um, it's part of your research project that spanned a few years, and these years included dramatic and tragic events that took place in Ukraine, first the Euromaidan, and then the start of Russia's war against Ukraine in 2014, and then recently Russia's full-scale invasion. So would you talk a little bit about what inspired you to write about Ukraine in the first place, and about political activism in Ukraine in particular? Sure. So I got interested in Ukraine, actually, when I was in high school, I was uh, really interested in, in learning languages. I was trying to study Russian. Um, and so I went to Ukraine in 2004 to work as an English teaching assistant in a high school there. Um, and there was a lot of parts of that experience that were not great. Uh, it was a very different cultural experience than anything I had had before. And, and so, and at that time, you know, I didn't really have the tools to understand what was going on around me. So uh, I studied anthropology in college, started to learn a little bit more about, you know, how to ask questions about things that, that don't make sense. Um, and I returned to Ukraine in 2011 I had a couple of friends that I met in 2004 um, who I stayed in touch with. And when I went back in 2011, one of them had become an activist in the higher education and student movement, um, which was pretty prominent, pretty active and proactive in Ukraine throughout the 2000s. There were several different iterations of the organization that this this particular person was involved with. Um, and at that time, I was, I was trying to find a new dissertation topic. And it was so interesting what was happening in higher education. Um, in Ukraine, and, and so I decided, with with this this friend's encouragement, to 
totally switch my dissertation topic and move to Ukraine. Um, he encouraged me to study Ukrainian, even though he came from a more Russian-speaking family and lived in Kiev, and, and Russian was kind of a more familiar language. So I, I decided to study Ukrainian, um, and I went back in 2012 to study Ukrainian, um, and that's when I really started doing the research, the, the ethnographic fieldwork with student activists um, in the summer of 2012. And interestingly enough, um, you know, I did, I, I was really focused on, on the kind of the structure of student activism, how it, how it looked in different parts of Ukraine. Um, and I was hoping to do a comparative study with a, a, a few different cities, including in Simferopol and Crimea, where there was a very active student organization as well. Um, but when I started my research in September of 2013, um, it turned out that, first of all, many of the questions I was thinking about were not actually getting at the things that, that were interesting and important for student activists. Um, and secondly, almost everybody that I met in all of those different cities that I wanted to study had moved to Kiev. So the, the locus of my research had moved to Kiev. That had become the place where activists were really um, focused, and, and that was where the most activity was happening. And then, of course, in November, the Euromaidan protests started, and so I ended up with this group of activists and I was basically following them around the protests and that's that's sort of how the project developed. Um, it was really interesting working with political activists. You know, they were people who, as you learn in the book, consider themselves kind of broadly speaking on the political left, um, which is a pretty marginal political position in terms of the fact that leftists of today they're not associated with the communist or socialist or any like official leftist parties. Um, and so they don't experience a lot of political representation within the official institutions. Um, however, they are excellent at getting people out into the streets. They know how to organize public protests, a variety of kinds of protests, right? They use different tactics to keep people interested, to get people motivated. Um, so for the Euromaidan protests, this was a really important place for them to engage because it was obviously very focused on presence in the street, um, moving outside of party representation. So the activists that I worked with, despite the fact that they were kind of marginal to Ukrainian political society, they were really central to those mass mobilizations um, because of their skill set, the way that they saw protest and how it should work. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I just have a quick follow-up question on your previous interests, right, in student organizations. And you mentioned that uh, you wanted to do some work in Simferopol and Crimea. So could you just describe very briefly what what, the, what that interest was, right, and what you wanted to focus on um, before your interest migrated to uh, Kiev? Yeah. Um, so the the student organization that I that I worked with most directly was called Tramadia Direct Action. So that's a it's a it's called a, a kind of an independent student union. So it's a a, a collective of students um, who focus on various aspects of higher education at different institutions. So technically, it's it's kind of an umbrella of several different cells, if you want to call them that. Um, of activist groups. And the, the branch that existed in Simferopol was very active, and they had done some of the most successful campaigning on behalf of students. So that organization or that branch of the organization, which was autonomous from the, the central Pramedia, but still very much in line in terms of political ideology and motivations, um, and, and because Crimea was governed separately, there were um, a, there was a different higher education policy for institutions in Crimea than the rest of Ukraine. 
so student activism was responding to a sort of different authority than than in in Kiev or in the mm -hmm. other universities mm -hmm. across Ukraine, um, and so they made these very specific demands about you know access to to dormitories, access to coursework, access to laboratories, libraries, um, the not you know not having to be charged fees for various aspects of, of one's education. It was really the students in Crimea who did a lot of the campaigns that ended up um, motivating the students in Kiev. So they were really, they were really effective example of that activism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, and um, as someone who witnessed the events that started unfolding in Ukraine in 2013, how would you position Ukraine in socio-political terms vis-a-vis -vis Russia? And maybe uh, you can mention something about further developments and um, the mm -hmm. current moment. Yeah, this, you know, having, um, it's, it's so interesting as an anthropologist, I, I have always focused only, only on Ukraine, obviously anthropology, you know, anthropologists do different, make different choices. There are some people, you know, do multi-sided studies, but, but I've always taken the, the tactic of, of, of focusing on Ukraine. Um, of course that, you know, studying the region has meant that I've had to do a lot of reading about Russia, but it was never for me, the model of, of what might happen elsewhere. Um, and so it was always not, I don't want to use the word natural, but it was almost not that big of a surprise to see mass protests in Ukraine because it wasn't like it was the first time Ukraine had mm -hmm. seen mass protests. Mm -hmm. um, and this was something also that the my interlocutors, the activists I was working with, they talked about and positioned themselves a lot within this tradition of mass protest. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's a question of whether or, you know, is, is Ukraine unique in this tendency to have mass protest as a response to certain political developments? Um, you know, and, and, and for these protests, the Euromaidan protests, it's especially interesting because so many different groups of people participated. I focus largely on leftist students, feminists, but these are people who are, you know, they don't necessarily see themselves as being represented by the Ukrainian government, by government figures, um, but yet they want to be out into the streets. You know, they know that they might experience violence. They accept that that's part of this protest movement. Um, you know, that's something that is very special in the way that so many people agree to sort of take on that role as part of their citizenship. Um, and that's something that I think is like active, engaged kind of citizenship where it's because people believe that they can make changes um, in in who's representing them and how they're represented and how being a citizen works. Um, that's very particular to Ukraine and especially to post-independence Ukraine. Um, we see, you know, in Russia and Belarus, for example, protests that are significant in responses to elections or around specific opposition political figures. But the Euromaidan is especially interesting because it moves so far outside of a single political figure. It's, it's about much more than that. It's about what democracy looks like and what the future of the country looks like. Um, and that in that sense, um, you know, it's, it's to me, the connections between that, that moment in 2013 and 2014 and what we've seen since February of this year of 2022, it's a direct connection. You know, people come out into the streets or they, they volunteer or they want to help, you know, their community or they want to help displaced people. All of these things are because of that, well-established tradition of active citizenship 
people believe that they can and should contribute. That's part of what it means to be Ukrainian today. Um, that's a tradition. That's not just something that developed on February 25th. That's that's gone, you know, back. Um, I, I mean, I think we could even trace it to the, you know, the late 80s Chernobyl protests, the revolution on granite, right? There's a long tradition of this kind of participation in Ukraine. Yeah, but uh, also as uh, you describe the mechanisms, right, of self-organization in Ukraine, uh, you point out that self-organization and volunteering were a sign of Ukraine's European-style democracy. So would you um, would you unpack this <laughs> this this line a little bit? <laughs> yeah, this was a really interesting um, aspect of of thinking about the state. Um, so in the book, I positioned the state as this kind of body of institutions and actors that serve to govern the territory of, of, of Ukraine, as, as we think of it as a modern nation state. And I positioned self-organization as this concept of people doing something because it needs to be done and because they have the ability to do it. You know, instead of waiting for somebody else to do whatever needs to be done, they do it themselves. And in this particular case, I talk about how self-organization serves to meet people's needs, in particular when the state, and at that time we're talking about Viktor Yanukovych's state, um, when that particular state either won't because they don't want to meet people's needs or because they have their own interests in mind, um, there are gaps that are left that, you know, in, in which people's needs fall through the cracks. So the Euromaidan protests are about reconstructing a state that's more representative of the people who live in that state. Then after 2014, we start to see a different kind of relationship between the state and self-organization because we, we see the state after President Poroshenko was elected in 2014, kind of have this legacy of these protests, somewhat more representative of the people. However, that state is limited because it it is it's there's still chaos after the protests. Um, you know, the military is in, in particular is not very well reformed. So self-organization has to come in to meet the needs of people because the state cannot, not because it its actors are neglectful or, or endangering citizens, but simply because it does not have the capacity and the resources. And so the thing that I, that I kind of trace in the book is this retraction of the state that we see in a lot of modern democracies where the welfare state is sort of deconstructed, to some extent privatized. So what previously was the realm of social services or, or state-sponsored um, programming is no longer the jurisdiction of the state and some other institution takes it on, whether that's a private company or a non-governmental organization or a civil society organization. And the post-Euromaidan Ukrainian state shrinks in a very similar way, retracts in a very similar way as these other European democracies. And again, it's these private organizations or NGOs or civil society organizations that fill the gaps left by the state. And that's kind of the way that I that I position Ukraine as, as functioning in a similar way to many of those European states that have also experienced this particular development that I think is sort of particular to our, our late capitalism stage. 
Mm-hmm. So, and um, in your book, you also describe the Euromaidan not only in terms of a complex sociopolitical phenomenon, uh, but also as a vibrant place that somehow, some way, absorbed a variety of views and ideas, dreams, personal dreams, probably, uh, and aspirations. <clears throat> they were there were some educational initiatives, and uh, there was some certain gender dynamic there as well. And you also point out that the very place became not just the place to deliver ideas to the public, but also to show and demonstrate what these ideas would mean. And in addition to supplying all necessary items to the protesters, as you point out, the participants also would clean the space, which which was quite important. Uh, well, uh, I would say outstanding, right? It's 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 peculiar. So, um, could you uh, could you elaborate a little bit on those? complexities that the Euromaidan absorbed and represented as well, and also conflicting narratives that somehow were um, hosted right by the uh, Euromaidan uh, participants, and the ways in which these conflicting narratives were managed or probably were not managed, in your opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think something that gets lost in translation a lot when we talk about those protests is this perception that they were one mass of people all agreeing about everything. And that was absolutely not the case. But that's what makes them so important mm-hmm. and so interesting. So, um, you know, one of the one of the things that I think really drove people was separating the protesters and the the impression that protesters gave, separating that from the, the role of the police and the role of state forces. So in, in particular, you mentioned the the cleaning. I have a, a little anecdote and some images of the Ukrainian house, which which was um, occupied um, by protesters after it had been occupied by police. And the police, according to the protesters, the police had come into this building, which is a historic landmark. It's an absolutely impressive and gorgeous building. Um, and they had damaged, they had done a lot of damage to the building. And they're our archives on the top floor and they had damaged the archives and left a lot of trash and debris. And so the protesters came in to clean the space so that it could be more comfortably occupied. But that was done intentionally so that they would be seen as taking care of things that belonged to the citizens of Ukraine. And using that that as an example, right? Police want to just take whatever they, you know, they can. They don't have respect for the space. They don't have respect for its history, what it means. But us, we're the real voice of Ukraine. We're going to take good care of it. Um, and we're going to use this occupied space as a space to to talk about democracy and what it looks like. So, again, that was a place that hosted film screenings and discussions, lectures, that sort of thing, to kind of foster conversation among different protesters. So I think a lot of that was done really intentionally um, because people were conscious of the image of the of the protests. Um, and that's something, you know, that was just a really interesting dynamic to observe um, and, you know, to, to get to sort of witness the changes over time too, because it was always being negotiated, right? Not, sometimes something, you know, some group would try something, it maybe it wouldn't be accepted by everyone, then it would be renegotiated and tried again, right? There was always this back and forth of making sure that that um, to some extent, um, you know, the the image was was the right one and the, and the the right kind of conversations were being had. Um, as far as conflicting narratives, I it's an interesting question because on the one hand, um, 
on the one hand, and, and this is something I talk, I talk more at length of in the book, you know, I, I, so I worked largely with these leftist physician activists. Um, and one of the things I talk about recur in, in terms of their recurring issues in, in the protest was trying to go to participate on Maidan with this language that was very leftist in, you know, in resonance, it didn't go very well. They weren't very well received um, because they were always being associated with the Communist Party of Ukraine or, or with state socialism, which is not what they were after. That's that's they were critical of those those entities as well. But it's just it's about the long perception of the left in Ukraine. And so they would recalibrate the way that they participated so that they could go back to the protests with language that would be more resonant with all the protesters. So, for example, anti-police state language, that came directly out of leftist activist discussions of how to position themselves as against the state, which is something that all, you know, as, as far as I can see, the vast majority of protesters also position themselves against the state and particularly against this police state. Um, so I don't know if it's so much about the protests themselves being able to incorporate a variety of narratives or if it's about political actors finding ways to incorporate their own positions into the protests. I would say also, you know, feminist activists present a different and interesting case here because that was something, um, and, and we've read about it with other researchers who worked on L with LGBT activists too. Um, there was a broader sense that, okay, well, we're fighting first for democracy we can talk about gender later. We can talk about rights for LGBT people later. That's a later question. It's not a now question. And many feminist activists in particular wanted to really insist on like, actually, no, we need to talk about this as part of rebuilding this democracy. Um, that wasn't always really very well received. Um, and it, you know, it created a really interesting space for women to think about how to participate as women and as, as feminists as well, um, which, you know, personally, I think that the long-term effect of that is actually to create more of a dialogue among feminists with different beliefs in Ukraine, which has been very robust since 2014. Um, but I don't think that feminist presence on Maidan turned most Ukrainians into feminists, right? I don't think that was something that was incorporated via those protests, but I do think those protests created a greater space for feminist discussion. So in that sense, you know, these these protests are, are much more significant than just about removing Yanukovych, getting an association agreement. It's really about the creation of a space for democracy and dialogue um, that I that that's what I think is the long term effect of them. And who were the participants? So the overall perception is that the protest was started by younger people. Yeah. Um, and and I. I think that's fairly true, at least in the very beginning. The the first week was very student-dominated, so that's the week of, of the 21st of November when the association agreement is initially not signed. Um, the, the students are definitely the ones who are first out there taking those risks. Um, but after the first violence is used against students on November 30th, when the riot police decided to go ahead and, and clear, clear the square and, and arrest and beat up those student protesters, that's when you really started to see people of all ages coming out because it was, um, I think it was a combination of perception that these, these students are willing to give something up for us. Now we have to, you know, fight for their right to be here too. Um, but also this understanding that it could be anybody who could get targeted, right? It wasn't, it wasn't a particular type of person. It was, everybody was at risk. Um, and I mean, I would say just in terms of, you know, mobility and flexibility, young people were probably most able to be present 
just out of you know convenience sake. Um, and and the universities also there was a lot of discussion about whether or not the universities would sanction students being allowed to skip classes to participate in. And some of them didn't want to, and some of them did. That was an ongoing topic of conversation. But there were universities that actually said, okay, we're going to move to distance learning and sort of assume the students would be out there. Um, I, you know, there's other researchers that have done more, more um, substantive survey work to show the demographic of the protesters that could actually break down exactly, you know, who was out there. But there are people who are representing all kinds of age groups, all kinds of economic status, the whole country, people would come from every single part of the country to Kiev and then sometimes take, go back to their home cities and reestablish Euromaidans in their own cities too. Um, so those, in terms of, in terms of actual representation, um, probably young people and probably local people and, and um, you know, people with more mobility are overrepresented, but in terms of you know seeing people in the square, you would certainly see people of all ages, um, and including younger you know kids as well, because it, it, for a large part, um, especially during the day, it was a pretty safe place. You know, people taking care of each other. Um, so that was always, you know, really interesting to see the littlest kids participating in democracy as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh, would also like to talk a little bit about um, the values that were upheld by the um, Euromaidan um, protest and uh, about this notion of trust, uh, the notion of trust that somehow the protesters um, made the government probably think about or probably use this notion of trust to challenge the state and the um and the government at that moment yeah absolutely um well i think you know there's been there's been so much research in post-soviet states i guess we can say broadly um that citizens of post-soviet states are not very likely to trust the, the state right the entities that the actors, the bodies that make up their state, that's a long legacy of state socialism. Um, you know, people's networks of trust are very small, they're very localized. That's that's certainly something that remains true um, to some extent, although I think actually that it might be changing in Ukraine today. Um, but that's something, you know, I think the something that the protests kind of gave to Ukraine is this idea, not that you should imagine a state that you can trust, but that there are networks that are worth trusting. You Mm. can build networks that are worth trusting. What do those networks look like? That's what was at, at, you know, under, under, under question in those protests. Um, And that's why in Ukraine, at least these non-governmental actors. So what we might call civil society, although I am pretty critical of that kind of disembodied notion in the book. Um, But, you know, actors that work outside of the state in, in different ways, that's what people can trust because a they actually know the people doing the work or b they've seen those organizations and those groups be effective and effectively challenge the state um, and state actors as well so i think i'm not sure if i could say that there's a new state that's rebuilt with trust in mind but i do think that the new actors that represent the state in ukraine have a different understanding of how they relate to citizens. They understand that the citizens are going to hold them accountable um, and that Ukraine will ultimately be better off if that's how they go into their their governance. Um, you, you know, that that's something that I think has to be observed in the much longer term. That's, you know, we've only had two presidents who we can really 
assess um, based on this kind of post-Maidan idea of trust. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact of, you know, establishing institutions that you can, in fact, trust, that's something that I think is really different. Um, and that, that I, I would say, is maybe a new value that was established during these protests because, you know, a lot of the sort of empty signifiers, like even we can say, you know, democracy or Europe, these are our supposed values that that the protesters stood for collectively. But what do those actually mean? Building a trust network is the, is the actionable part of those values. Um, finding a way to participate in governance is the active, active part of, of those values. Saying, I want Ukraine to be a democracy, that's great. So do I. <laughs> how, do, how do you in your day-to-day life make Ukraine more democratic? It's by building networks and participating in networks you know, that help others and, and that support um, people's needs. So I think I think that's kind of the shift, I guess, that we can we can see from 2014. Would you share your memory of your first day on Maidan? <laughs> yeah, it was. The, so the protest started on November 21st late at, at night. So I wasn't there that night. And the um, November 22nd, I had this this friend uh, who was a student activist, too. And, and we would go to this philosophy discussion club that was hosted at the Academy of Sciences. So that's just up this very steep hill from, from Maidan. Um, so we went to this discussion club. We were talking all these philosophical questions. Um, it was, you know, just something fun to do and meet people. Um, and he told me afterwards, like, okay, I heard there were these protests on Maidan last night. Let's go down and check it out. It's raining. It's drizzling. It was, you know, really bad weather. And we went down and there were probably... I don't know, maybe 50 people in this square in this stage that was smaller than the desk that I'm sitting behind. It could fit maybe two people on it. Um, and they they were, you know, all the flags were Ukrainian and European flags. Um, it was pretty sparse, pretty small. Um, and and the person that I was with was pretty disappointed. He he heard what he had considered to be really nationalist slogans that, that I think now maybe we would assess a little differently. Um, but he really thought it was just, you know, your regular political parties, uh, you know, in particular the Svoboda party that had become very reactionary in this time. And, and so I think he, he really assumed and, and kind of expressed to me, like, nothing is really going to happen. It's just going to be, you know, Svoboda party radicals trying to push back against this. And, you know, that's it. So honestly, the first impressions of these protests was that they weren't going to be that meaningful. Um, Yet, I went back with the same person many, many times over the course of the next few months, because as soon as they really started to gain traction, he understood how significant they were and how important it was to be there. Um, So they ended up being very different than than what uh, I think either of us first thought that they would be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I would like to go back to um, the... um a topic that we mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, uh, education, the educational sphere. And um, in your book, you cover a lot about those changes that students somehow initiated. You also mentioned the events at Kiev Mohila Academy and the role that students uh, played uh, in terms of uh, the um, ministers of education in Ukraine. Um, so, um Students and their contribution to the changes in educational sphere uh, seem to be uh, quite 
exemplary of those very profound changes that were taking place in the country. But subsequently, somehow those changes ceased to be as visible. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting case, uh, and I've asked myself this a lot, honestly, because as I I think I said earlier, um, this particular student organization and, and activism around higher education was really robust in the two thousands. There were several different iterations. There were a lot of different um, changes in higher education law put forth through the 2000s and especially in the 2010s, and student activists were always ready to respond. And as I also talk about more at length in the book, this isn't just this radical leftist student union. They actually had a a great coalition with student activists of various political ideologies, and they always would reiterate to me that was why it was so effective. It was not just this you know, fringe group fighting against the, the, the legislation. It was all these organizations working together to push back against the, the government's proposed changes. Um, and so that's why it, w- it was really effective. And that's why students were, were prepared as such a mobilizable group when the protests on Maidan started. Um, they were really, they were already very politicized. They were already very savvy in terms of the techniques that should be used. Um, and they were already, I think, you know, it's so interesting how they pushed back against the administrators who tried to make it so that they wouldn't participate or that they would see some risk in participating in the protest. They had already fought with them so much and had established that relationship that the students really had, had the power in those relationships. And that was amazing to see. Um, I will say that in in February, when the when Yanukovych fled and the new government was being formed, the students had occupied the Ministry of Education and were sort of trying to negotiate what the new Ministry of Education should look like. And that was when that coalition started to fracture. Mm-hmm. And you saw leftist, more radical students who did not want the type of liberalization and neoliberalization that is sort of what ended up happening. So a lot of the more moderate or right-leaning groups agreed with this idea that some education leaders in Ukraine had that Ukraine should try to position its higher education system as a competitor with European education systems, which that the result of that was a stratification of certain institutions that would receive more money from the state, whereas other institutions would receive less money and, and maybe even have to close. Leftist activists were advocating for free and, and quality higher education for everybody. So a more equitable education system, whereas a kind of liberalization or neoliberalization of the education system means a marketization, you know, a a commercialization, this attempt to to position it as as comparable and therefore competitive um, with European education systems. So the success of the reforms that went in that direction, that's what sort of leads to uh, a falling off of of the more radical positions in higher education. Um, some of those changes were pretty swift, and they've they've been um, sustained over several ministers of higher education or ministers of education. So the the more well established they are, I think, the harder they are to fight against and overturn. Um, and so that's been you know. And I also honestly, I, I think it's very true that after the the Euromaidan protest, there was really substantial burnout among activists who just could not sustain fighting again and again and again. Um, mm-hmm. 
you know, for and, and so there's a, a real dip in activism after that. Um, and then by the time people have the motivation again, these policies have been established. Education has taken a different direction. Um, and it, you know, and, and the whole landscape of what higher education activism would look like has shifted. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So uh, we just commemorated the uh, Euromadan events just a couple of weeks ago, if not days ago. Um, and um, I-, I wanted to ask you this question about uh, your opinion on how the violence that was perpetrated by the government against the protesters changed the nature of the Euromadan protests. Yeah, um, it's a you know it's an interesting question because it. I, I talk in the book about three major phases of, of the Euromaidan protest, all of which are, are intimately connected with violence. Um, so you start out with this idea that these are nonviolent, peaceful protests, but as those government forces become increasingly willing to use violence against the protesters, the protesters themselves have to make that decision of whether or not they will also participate in violence. Um, it's a you know it's still a question of um, is it were the protesters sort of obligated to use force in order to protect themselves to survive um, or was there a way for them to have continued to protest peacefully you know that's not what happened so it's it's not really necessarily worth speculating but the people that I worked with were very intentional about their relationship with violence and and many of them understood that they as a that many leftist activists as a position took a nonviolent position, did not want to participate in violence, even though they wanted to support the protesters. So there was, you know, there were certainly people who supported the protests, but who wouldn't engage with violence. And therefore they found other ways to, to help protesters. Um, but it's, you know, it really shifted something because it, it really showed that it's not, whereas previously we're talking about a state that will not, respect its citizens by simply, you know, having different needs, basically the state is serving its own needs, not the citizens, we get to this point where the state is actively endangering citizens, it's actively threatening citizens. And that just crosses a line where people have, you know, just decide, we're not going to accept this anymore. And, you know, we're willing to give their lives to to make a change there. So, um, I, you know, I think it's really, it really shifted in, in significant ways how activists and how I think all the participants of those protests associated with the state, once those lines were crossed, um, you know, anything could happen, including the violent response by protesters, which was understood as acceptable because the state had used, you know, had crossed that line. State actors had crossed that line first. Mm-hmm. I can, but mentioned the um, uh, current moment uh, and there is this uh, huge uh, wave of volunteering endeavors in Ukraine. There is a huge wave of um, self-organization groups uh, and um, I can be wrong in this assumption but um, 
Of course, there was a lot of frustration right after the Euromaidan events and in the subsequent years. But I also think that to some extent, uh, Euromaidan experience enabled this current massive volunteering movement in Ukraine. And today, volunteering in Ukraine is not something that signals one's political choice, but it's more of an existential manifestation that is so central today for many Ukrainians in Ukraine and outside Ukraine. Absolutely. I absolutely think that's true. Um, I think it's a, you know, I think um, that's one of the things that is so interesting about this concept of self-organization. In the in the book, I really connect it with leftist, you know, political and politicized origins. But what makes it so effective is how easily it can distance itself from any political position. Anyone can self-organize anything. Um, and so it isn't, at this point in particular, it isn't a political stance. It can be a political action, but it isn't necessarily a political stance. Um, but really, you know, I, I so in the past couple of years, I've been working on research about internal displacement, and I've talked to a lot of people who... Um, who work with international organizations who help displaced people from the 2014 to 2022 period, um, but they got there through volunteering. So they were volunteers who helped displaced people in the first place, and then those volunteer networks got kind of integrated into international organizations, um, and that's how they, and every last one of them connected that volunteer response with the, the sentiments and values of Euromaidan to help one another, uh, and this understanding that regular people could, in fact, build better networks and do the things that, that the state couldn't do. And I absolutely see that as the foundation for the response to the invasion on February 24th, because people understood not only that they were capable of, of doing these things, but that it was necessary and that, you know, Ukraine would not survive if they didn't do it, right? The stakes became that much higher. Um, but it was so effective because so many people had already done it. They already understood how to mobilize one another, how to mobilize resources. They understood that, you know, everything needs to be done from picking up a gun and going to the front line to, you know, making sure that your neighbor upstairs has something to eat. All of those things are are part of the spectrum of self-organization in this response. Um, and so I, I absolutely trace this back to, to 2014, if not before, just mm -hmm. this knowledge of how to navigate these mm -hmm. spaces and navigate navigate this kind of practice is, mm -hmm. is all connected. Mm -hmm. Is your current project in any way connected with self-organization in Ukraine? It is, yeah, because I, I see so many of the actors who um, were initially involved in, in helping displaced people motivated by self-organization. And, and that self-organization especially in some of the cases I've talked to experts who or, or who, who you know who came out of activism you know they identified okay look all of these cars are arriving that have tag numbers from Donetsk and Luhansk the government's not doing anything I guess I can ask my friends if they can gather you know sheets and towels and and you know extra winter coats or, or whatever people need they self-organized to make sure that these people who were forcibly displaced had their basic needs met because the government was not doing it and it absolutely needed to be done. Um, that's a question of capacity, right? That's a question of the government simply does not have the resources to meet these needs. Um, but it's it's very self-organized. So I didn't really intend necessarily to, to have my current research be so focused on self-organization 
Um, but I think it's inevitable. The legacies of those, mm-hmm. you know, what people learned in those protests and, and how effective self-organization is, is um, what really shapes how people relate to the state and to their their, their fellow citizens today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I really appreciate the final chapter or the final part um, that was written after the full-scale invasion. And um, I believe you uh, do stay in touch with many of your friends in Ukraine today. Yeah. I do. Yeah. And thank you for that. It was really, um, you know, I wasn't sure what to write. Honestly, it was, I wrote it in April of 2022. So it, it very much reflects that specific moment and what's happening then. Um, but it's, you know, I, I, I wasn't especially surprised that the, the activist friends that I have stayed in touch with were deeply involved in the humanitarian response. Some of them joined the territorial, um, territorial defense forces. Um, some of them have done humanitarian aid. Um, some of them, you know, are, are doing everything in between. They're traveling a lot. They're delivering, you know, needs, medicines, um, food. Some of them are, are finding ways to get behind the front lines of occupied territories. I mean, they're just doing amazing stuff. Um, and it's so, um, you know, I, I, I honestly, I, I don't, I hate that they have to do it. It's, it's not where I thought this book would end. Um, I, I was in Ukraine in September of 2021, and I was doing some follow-up interviews with the people featured in the book, and I felt like I had closed the chapter. You know, I felt like that was the end of the story, and it, and it wasn't. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's also so, um, I don't know, uh, not, I don't know what the right word is. It's not really like a positive thing, but it's so... Um, powerful just to see them respond in this way after after having done so much already and, and continuing to be active and and just fight for just their right to exist it's really it, it really helps inspire me to mm-hmm. to keep keep going um even when it feels really difficult yeah well uh thank you thank you so much for that very uh touching very touching chapter and thank you for the book and i'm very grateful for this conversation uh today um i really appreciate uh your insight into the contemporary history of ukraine that in many ways also helps to understand the present moment and um the present ukrainians um fight against this uh Uh, full-scale invasion which was launched by the Russian uh, Federation. Thank you, Emily. Thank you so much for the questions. I really appreciate you taking the time to read the book. Today I spoke with Emily Channel Justice, author of Without the State, Self-Organization and Political Activism in Ukraine, published by the University of Toronto Press in 2022. Thank you for listening to New Books in Ukrainian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.